0: You're listening to the Metamorph City Podcast, Episode 12, for February 24th, 2008. Metamorph City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorphcity.com. Hello there, Metamorphs. Welcome back. I'm not going to talk long today in the intro because I'm in a hurry to get this episode finished before my trip to California, which I'll be back from by the time you hear this. Today's episode is Chapter 4 of Making the Cut, so let's not dilly-dally any more than we have to. It's time for The Story So Far. Daniel Shirabi is one of the biggest outcasts in the Psy Collective, a male whose telepathic powers have been judged too weak to be useful. His friend from high school, Brian Summers, is one of the Collective's Golden Boys, a military veteran whose powers of electrokinesis give him amazing control over computers and other high-tech gear. The Collective's local group mind, The Hive, has rewarded Brian with a breeding cell, where it's his job to father children with three of the most talented young women in the Psy community, one of whom is Daniel's old girlfriend, Rebecca. But the Hive's benefits have strings attached. Even though Brian has retired from military work, the Hive elders have recruited him for one last mission. The Hive's greatest enemy, the Vampire Crime Syndicate, is bringing in a package from a secret research facility overseas. A facility that specializes in making custom-grown nanotech viruses. The Elders want Brian to bring his old SIOP team back together and steal the package when it arrives at the Skyport in Metamore City. Meanwhile, Daniel has been recruited by his old combat instructor, Victor Hinkavos, to help smuggle that same package past customs, not realizing who their employer is or what the package contains. The night before the Skyship arrives, Daniel and Victor meet with the other people their employer has hired for their mission. Evan Celindi, a smooth-talking androgyne who shares his body with his female alter ego, Ava. Callie Linder, a young runner whose supernatural luck gives her the upper hand in almost any situation, and four mercenaries, who will provide added muscle in case things turn nasty. Ava, the team's leader, explains the mission. Daniel and Victor will pose as Skyport deck workers and help unload the skyship when it docks. Once they find the package, they'll pass it off to Callie, who will then take it out of the skyport through the ventilation system. As the next day dawns, the two teams converge on the skyport, one to smuggle the package, the other to steal it, neither of them knowing that they have friends working for the other side. And now, Making the Cut continues. Chapter 4 May 26th. We're going up there? Uh Uh-huh. And you've got to come back down through the ventilation system? Yep. Daniel leaned close to the window and stared up. And up. And up. At the towers of Matthias Skyport. The complex rose 400 meters past all four levels of skyways and then another hundred meters above that. From there his gaze followed the lines of the spell-hardened steel docking pylons, which ran another two hundred meters above the bodies of the towers. Apart from the Majestrix's citadel, which at fifteen hundred meters was closer to being geography than architecture, it was the tallest structure in Metamore City. Dozens of skyships of varying sizes were moored at the branching network of pylons, like birds perched at the ends of an old-fashioned television antenna. The largest ones were 200 meters long and massed 40,000 tons, not including passengers and cargo. Their featherweight enchantments and anti-grav generators were the only things keeping them in the air. He turned to Callie. So, did you take this job because you were suicidal or just crazy? She cast a sideways glance at him, smirking.
1: Afraid of heights, Daniel? How long have you lived in this city?
0: Daniel grimaced. All my life? but there's a point where common sense tells you to run away screaming, and it's a good 300 meters before you reach the top of that thing. Callie shrugged.
1: Eh, it's not that scary. Just don't look down, that's all.
0: He quirked an eyebrow at her. How can you get through the vent shafts if you don't look down? She grinned.
2: I can't, but I'm not the one who's afraid of falling.
0: It's not the fall that worries me. It's the the sudden sudden stop stop at the end of it. it. They finished the old joke in unison and Daniel chuckled, feeling some of the tension ease out of his belly. He'd never been on a run like this before, but he'd done plenty of reckless and stupid things during his years at Westfall and had come through all right. He could do this. One job, he told himself. One job and I'll never have to do anything this stupid again. There was a rush of air and a maglev subway train glided out of the tube behind them and pulled up to the boarding platform. There were only a few dozen people waiting for it, Not many people were up this early on Sunday, unless they were Ecclesiasts going to church, and they quickly filed into the mostly empty cars. Let's go, Evan said, and they did. Daniel sat next to Callie near the front of the car, with Evan and Victor across from them. The four Mercs had spaced themselves out along the length of the car, their movements restless and wary. Ava had introduced them to Daniel last night, but they all used code names to remain anonymous, and he hadn't worked very hard to remember them. It wasn't as if he intended to work with any of them again. Other than Evan, none of the members of their party looked anything like their real selves. The doppel charms their employer had provided made each of them look like a Skyport employee whose absence from work was guaranteed. Daniel didn't want to think too much about how those absences might have been guaranteed, or how their ID cards had ended up in Evan's hands. Maybe they all won free weekend vacations out of town, he thought. Yeah, that's how I'd do it. In any event, Daniel and Victor were dressed in drab green coveralls and looked like a couple of -of run-of-the-mill deck monkeys on their way to work. Victor looked like a bald-headed Orambian, with skin as black as coal, while Daniel was now a blonde haired blue-eyed Kitchlander, a role reversal that Daniel had found amusing when they first slipped on the charms. Callie looked like a thirty-something maintenance worker, her eyes sunken and bloodshot, and her skin prematurely weathered by too much tanning in her younger years. They sat in silence during the ten-minute ride from the subway station to the Skyport, Daniel spent the time running through the plan in his mind, trying to envision the maps they'd studied last night and the routes they would follow for getting in and out. Assuming nothing goes wrong, the cynical part of his brain noted. (laughs) Right, and after that we'll go skiing in the sixth hell. There was a soft thump as they passed through one of the spell fields that kept the subway tubes down to one third of normal atmospheric pressure, and the sound of air resistance against the body of the maglev train increased substantially. The train began to slow, and the passengers gathered their belongings and got to their feet.
3: Matthias Skyport South Entrance,
0: a pleasant female voice said from the loudspeakers.
3: Please watch your step when exiting the train.
0: The Skyport's subway terminal was a major interchange point for four of the city's subway lines, and it was much fancier than the small local station where they had boarded the train. Many of the floors and supporting pillars were marble, and the walls were covered with mosaics of skyships and famous Metamore City landmarks. Figment generators projected three-dimensional illusions hawking merchandise or advertising exotic destinations, accompanied by recorded audio tracks that enthusiastically described what the illusions were trying to sell you. Here and there, street musicians sat with their instrument cases open in front of them, playing guitars or flutes or tribal drums or bazookies for anyone who would stop to listen to them. On the upper levels, there were food vendors and shops set into the walls of the terminal, a full-blown shopping mall ready and willing to help separate passing travelers from their money, even if they were just here to catch a connecting train. Even early on a Sunday morning, this terminal was a beehive of activity, and Daniel and the rest of his team moved unnoticed through the crowds. The employee's entrance was located at the end of an unmarked hallway near the main entrance, where hundreds of people waited in line to pass through the security checkpoints from the subway station to the Skyport proper. Security was tight and long lines of bored and irritated people waited to have their luggage and selves inspected for threats both magical and mundane. The Empire had been having a problem lately with terrorist attacks from Shi partisans, who held the Prophet Mirai Hindana responsible for the devastation of their home plane of the Dreamlands. The Fairy Lords had targeted the Empire as an outlet for their frustration because the ageless Mirai lived at the Citadel with the Majestrix. Their demands were that either Kaia must exile her from Metamor, at which point she would certainly be targeted for assassination, or she must do something about the armies of Celestials and Fiends who had turned the Dreamlands into an eternal battleground for their great war. Majestrix Kaia had refused to back down on her support of the Prophet, and thus far no good solution to the Dreamlands problem had presented itself. Imperial negotiators had been trying for years to compromise with the Shi by offering them land on the material plane, but thus far the two sides had been unable to agree on what was acceptable compensation for the loss of the infinite dreamlands. The last that Daniel had heard was that the Shi were demanding all of Sathmore west of the mountains, and the odds of that happening were only slightly better than the odds of him getting through the upcoming run without being shot at. In contrast to the public lines, there were only a few people ahead of them at the security checkpoint for the employee entrance. Evan took the lead here, walking well ahead of the others and greeting the guards amiably as he approached. The guard on the near side of the checkpoint scanned his ID card, which caused the light on his terminal to flash green. He then waved Evan through a series of arches that housed the checkpoint's array of metal detectors and spell sensors, which gave all clear indicators as Evan passed under them. Another guard waited on the far side of the checkpoint with a sensor wand, though he showed no intention of using it on Evan since he had passed through the machines without incident. At this point Evan shifted to Ava, who leaned in close to the guard and began chatting with him in a distinctly friendly manner. Within seconds he was so thoroughly wrapped around her finger that Daniel doubted he could remember his own name. While Ava was doing her best to persuade the second guard that he might have to strip-search her in the interests of national security, The first guard reached behind his computer terminal and flipped a small, hidden switch. He winked at Daniel and the others, scanning each of their cards in turn and sending them through the now-disabled detectors. The second guard never took his eyes off of Ava for even a moment. Daniel, Victor, Callie, and the Mercs continued down the hallway and up a short flight of steps to a small lobby with four lifts. They took the first empty one on the express side and began the long journey up to the main cargo bays. We're not waiting for Ava? Daniel asked. Victor smirked. Don't worry about her. Once she finishes with that guard, she'll go to her post and start running interference for us. The only way you'll see her again today is if something goes wrong. Oh. Daniel looked at the LED display above the lift doors. As he watched the numbers slowly tick their way upward, he hoped that Ava was as good at getting them out of trouble as she was at getting them into it.
4: Any sign of them yet? Fiona scanned
0: the crowd in the Skyport subway terminal, her cool green eyes taking in everything.
3: Negative on visual.
0: Sasha touched Brian's hand lightly. They're here, she said softly.
5: I just made contact with Adele. He and Trace found each other in one of the shops. They'll meet us by the security checkpoint.
0: Brian nodded, then reached up and readjusted his glasses on the bridge of his nose. His duffel bag slid off his shoulder as he did so, and he hiked it back up with an irritated grunt. There wasn't much in there that he really needed for the mission, but a group of passengers without any luggage would have looked suspicious. Granted, the disguise charms, fake ID cards, and non-detection scroll inside the bag would cause them trouble enough if anyone searched it, but at least this way Brian only had to get one bag through the checkpoint unnoticed. It would have been worse if they'd had the equipment spread between all of them. There they are, Fiona said. Brian looked up to see Del and Trace loitering near the entrance to the queue for the security checkpoint, looking dapper and respectable in their tailored suits. Brian was dressed like a tourist heading out for summer vacation, and he felt almost shabby by comparison in his shorts, t-shirt, and sandals. The wolfman and the Arambian didn't make eye contact with them as they joined the line for the checkpoint. But Brian felt their happiness and excitement as Sasha patched them into a shared link. Brian, Dell called, his telepathic voice carrying the psychic equivalent of a joyful hug.
4: Long time no see, man. You're
0: telling me, Brian said, grinning.
4: How are you and Josephine doing?
1: Fantastic. Thanks for asking. We have a daughter now Elizabeth Yammer. No way. How old is she?
6: Four months,
0: Dell said, his pride obvious.
6: You should see her, be, Gorgeous, white and silver coat, just like her mom. She's going to be a heartbreaker when she grows up.
4: Four months. Damn, it's been too long.
2: How second of that, Trace said. I hear you and the girls have got one of your
0: own on the way. Yep, Sasha said.
5: Becca's got 18 weeks to go. Sometime in the next month, we have to decide whether the next one is going to be Fiona's or mine.
0: Fiona unconsciously reached up and fingered her birth control amulet. I think we all know which way that's going to go, Trace said, amused. Fiona cleared her throat and stood up a bit straighter, bringing her hand abruptly back down to her side.
3: So what about you, Trace?
0: She asked coolly, the line of her thoughts so clear and direct as to override any further conversation on the subject.
3: I imagine they must have assigned you to stud service. How many other men's wives have you impregnated in the last year?
6: Fiona!
0: Sasha whispered, her eyes wide, but Trace was just shaking his head and chuckling, a basso rumble of amusement.
2: <laughs> You've got me all wrong, Fee, he said. I've settled down. Got a nice little sale going on with four smart, beautiful ladies up in Soho. Our second son's due in a month or so. I couldn't be happier.
0: Fiona blinked, a ripple of complex emotions running through the link.
3: Well... Wow. You can consider me suitably surprised, Trace Umbara.
0: She paused.
3: And impressed,
0: she added, her tone softening.
3: I never took you for a family man.
0: Hey, that's all right, girl, he said easily. It took me by surprise, too. But I wouldn't trade it. They continued their silent chat as the security line moved forward at glacial speed, catching up on a year's worth of gossip. As they drew close to the end of the line, Brian shifted past the others to the front of the group, bringing the big duffel bag along with him. While he wrestled it onto the conveyor belt that would take it through the x-ray machine and spell detectors, he reached out with his electrokinesis. He found a power line near his foot and nudged an exposed toe against the side of the machine, riding the current through the line and into the spell detector. The layout of the circuits was clean and well-designed, and he quickly found the logic pathways that led to the alarm system. With a tiny effort of will, he shut down the circuit, as well as the one that was designed to notify the user if the detector went offline. No matter what the sensors detected, the machine wouldn't tell its operators about it. The entire process had taken only a few seconds. The guard took his ID card and scanned it. The light turned green, and he looked at the display. His eyes went up, and he turned to Brian, looking impressed. Here you are, Captain, he said respectfully, giving a little bow as he handed the card back to Brian. Enjoy your vacation, sir. Brian nodded his thanks and walked through the arches to the other side. The other members of their group likewise passed through without incident. All of them were military veterans with honorable discharges, and that meant that no one would give them any hassle unless there was a damned good reason to do so. Brian waited for Fiona and Sasha, then continued down the hallway. Trace and Dell followed a few paces behind them. When they were out of sight of the security checkpoint, Brian stopped at a public access information terminal, where he quickly rode the circuits back to the security checkpoint and turned the magic sensors back on. The last thing that they needed was to inadvertently help some fairy terrorist set off a curse in the middle of the skyport. Before pulling out of the system, Brian checked the Skyport maps and found the loading bay where the Syndicate's skyship was scheduled to deliver its cargo for inspection. He turned back to the others, who were looking at him expectantly. He wondered again how he had been the one who ended up as the leader of this group during their years with MID. He never particularly thought of himself as leadership material, but he had sort of fallen into the role and now was apparently stuck with it.
4: Cargo's coming to Bay 94. That whole area is restricted, so we'll have to get past a guard station on the 87th floor."
0: They all sent back waves of ascent through the link, and together they rode an express lift up to the correct floor. It was one of the highest floors that was open to the public, and the area was full of restless travelers crowded near their respective gates. Shuttles, or crane-like boarding arms, would connect to those gates to ferry the passengers to their intended vessels, but it didn't look like any of this morning's flights were ready for departure yet. Brian led his team past the gates and over to a pair of restrooms that stood beside a door reading, Authorized Personnel Only. The security door was warded by an electronic keypad with an integrated ID card reader. You're up, Sasha, Brian murmured. The slight woman nodded and went inside the women's restroom, which was closer to the security door. About a minute later, a Skyport employee came up to the door and swiped his ID card in the reader, then punched in a code on the keypad. The door beeped and the employee went inside. Sasha came out of the bathroom a few seconds later, looking pleased. "'Got it,' she said through the link.
5: "'Today's passcode is 95064SC. There are four armed guards in the security station on the far side of the door.'"
0: Brian turned to Fiona, who nodded.
3: "'Not a problem. Just persuade the door to accept my identification. I will take care of the rest.'"
4: "'Will do. Sasha?' Del, Trace, keep a lookout." Brian pulled two
0: disguise amulets out of the duffel bag. Each was clipped to a fake ID with a photograph and embedded personal data that matched the persona crafted in the amulet. He handed Fiona's to her and placed his own in his pocket. They went into their respective restrooms, and Brian went inside a stall before he slipped the amulet over his head. He felt a tingling sensation as the magic took hold watching as his body changed into that of a pale-skinned Sathmoran man in his early fifties. His clothes changed, too, to mimic the uniforms worn by the Skyport security personnel. It was only a glamour, pure illusion. Underneath the weave of light and mana fields, he still felt like himself. Normally, he would have worried about mages seeing through the glamour, but the Elder assured him that the magic was subtle and tightly woven. Under mage sight, it would look like a minor cosmetic charm unless a wizard got suspicious enough to do a deep examination of the spell. Fortunately, most travelers in the middle of a long trip would be too tired, cranky, or excited to notice anything that didn't directly affect them. Brian waited until anyone who had seen him enter the restroom had already left or gone into one of the stalls. He came back out and saw a uniformed woman waiting for him near the entrance to the ladies' room. Fiona looked like a twenty-something Yamatuan woman with straight black hair, olive skin, a round face, and a gymnast's build. She had a distinct scar across her left eyebrow, a thin white line of an old knife wound or claw mark. It was a nice touch. People who tried to remember her later would fixate on that distinctive feature. The more solid the picture of you that the witness had in his mind, the less likely it was that he would even consider that you might be wearing a glamour. Fiona smirked, her oriental eyes narrowing almost to slits with the wry expression.
3: You look like you could be my father,
0: she said softly as they walked over to the security door. He chuckled.
4: (laughs) Obviously you haven't looked in a mirror lately.
0: He placed a hand on the security pad. Fiona reached over and swiped her fake ID while Brian sent a finger of thought down into the circuitry. A moment of persuasion convinced the computer that the card was valid and it flashed the message, Enter Passcode. Brian punched in the code that Sasha had pulled out of the employee's mind. The door beeped obediently and unlocked, and Fiona slipped inside. Brian moved as if to go in after her, then paused and went over to a nearby garbage can. He pulled a couple of used tissues out of his pocket and discarded them, another bit of pantomime, in case anyone wondered why he didn't go through the door. He smoothed the sides of his pants to banish a few imaginary wrinkles. That ought to be enough time. He went back to the door, scanned his card, and punched in the passcode and went through. On the other side was a narrow corridor, which ran straight for about seven meters before disappearing around a corner. To his left was the wall shared with the women's bathroom. To the right was a security station with large bulletproof windows along its entire length and only a single door in or out. The four guards inside were all lying on the floor, unconscious. None of them had even had time to draw their weapons, and Fiona had bound their hands behind them with their own handcuffs. Now she stood in the midst of her handiwork, her hands on her hips. She had a light sheen of sweat on her forehead, but she wasn't breathing hard. What kept you? Brian snorted. <laughs> Show off. He pulled one of the rolling chairs up to a terminal and sat down looking up at the array of monitors and closed-circuit vid screens that surrounded him. There was an open data port for a spelljack mounted next to the keyboard, but Brian didn't need technomagical hardware to interface with a computer network. Sticking his finger into the data port, he sent his will out into the system's active memory. The software was there waiting for him. His work with the Military Intelligence Directorate had taken Brian into some of the most secure computer networks in the world. Any network of more than a few machines was equipped with some kind of security system to prevent intrusion. The ones that Brian had faced were often capable of sending defensive magic back into the invader's spelljack, shutting down his connection or painting him with a magical signature that would allow him to be found and arrested. Some of the nastier systems actually carried lethal countermeasures though these were generally frowned upon by civilized nations. Officially, anyway. Unofficially, intelligence agencies spared no expense and no mercy dealing with those who might steal their secrets. Since joining the Westfall crèche full-time at age 10, Ryan had never met a defensive system that could stop him for long. Any security system smart enough to react to an intrusion had to live in the software and Brian's power extended to the physical circuits and storage media on which the software depended. He could see everything a program was doing simultaneously, both in the virtual world of the software and in the physical world of the hardware. If he decided that a program would not access a given circuit or store a key piece of data, it simply did not happen. He'd been doing it for so long that he didn't even have to think about the mechanics of it anymore. It was as natural and instinctive as breathing. The Skyport security system was good by civilian standards, but it didn't hold a candle to the programs Brian had done battle with on his psyop missions. In less than a minute, he had administrator-level control over all of the network's systems. Okay, it's clear, he told Sasha through the link. Get changed and come on in. Sasha and the others joined them a minute later, all of them wearing their disguised amulets and looking like Skyport employees. Dell's fur was a glossy black with a white patch at his throat, while Trace's skin had gone from dark brown to a pale green color. He did not look happy. All right, he said, crossing his arms.
2: Who's the son of a bitch who decided to make me a god's damn ogre?
0: Sasha covered her mouth and tried to suppress a laugh. Fiona just quirked an eyebrow at him.
3: You are overreacting, Trace,
0: she said evenly.
3: And that is a breed, not an ogre.
0: Trace scowled. His new form gave him a good face for scowling. Whatever. He turned to Dell, gesturing toward
2: Fiona. Look at her. Pug nose, pasty-faced white chick is turned into Miss Yamato, and they make me a lutin with a growth disorder.
0: Fiona clenched her fists and took a step toward Trace, her muscles rippling.
4: Stow it, both of you,
0: Brian snapped. Fiona turned to him. Her eyes were as hard as iron, but her body abruptly shifted from a combat stance to a neutral posture.
3: "'My apologies, Captain,'
0: she said, her voice eerily calm.
3: "'As the cell husband, of course it is your responsibility to take the lead in defending the honor of your
4: wives.' "'He wasn't questioning your honor. He was ragging on you,' Brian said, irritated. "'You've been doing it to each other for ten years. Gods, what's gotten into you, Fee?"
0: Fiona looked away, blushing slightly.
3: Rebecca and the baby are home alone,
0: she said quietly.
3: This mission is likely to be dangerous. I am worried for them.
0: She looked up at Trace.
3: It expressed itself as inappropriate anger. I apologize.
0: No problem, Fee," Trace said, his expression sober. Believe me, I know how it is. Me too, Dell murmured. His eyes had gone distant, and images of his wife and daughter reverberated through their shared link. An uncomfortable silence hung in the air for a few heartbeats. At last, Brian cleared his throat.
4: throat) Well, let's finish this job so we can get back to them.
0: He stood and folded his hands over his slight paunch of a stomach.
4: There's a network of ventilation ducts that runs through the entire skyport. They're big enough to fit a small person. Our best chance of getting the package out of here is for Fiona to use the ducts to carry it past the security checkpoints. Once you get to an entry level, you can just pop out of a storage room or something and carry it right out the front door. He shrugged. It's not like anybody's going to be looking for you. Fiona nodded.
3: Sasha should stay with you. She can watch the maps of the skyport and tell me where I need to go.
4: Agreed, Brian said. Dell, Trace, get the duct tape from the bag and truss up these guards. Then I want you to take their guns and get up to Bay 94. There's a cargo tender waiting to unload the skyship. Be on it.
1: No
6: sweat,
4: Dell said, already
0: in the process of tying up the guards. It was an obvious set-up line for a joke about wolves and their lack of sweat glands, but not even Sasha was in the mood to take it. She had pulled out the silver yew-tree crucifix that she wore around her neck and was holding it lightly between her fingers. She rubbed her thumb back and forth over the surface of the talisman, a sure sign of stress. Sasha still maintained a deep and personal faith in Eli, but she wasn't much of an ecclesiast anymore. She had left the church at the age of thirteen, largely because its teachings about sex ran contrary to the Psy Collective's polyamorous social structure. Still, the trappings of faith were important to her, and she clung to the crucifix as a good luck charm. Old habits died hard, Brian supposed.
4: All right, the tender's our best shot for getting that thing out of here. Do what you can to get it before the tender comes back here, but don't take any stupid risks. The Elder gave us a whole lot of maybes on this mission, and as far as I'm concerned, that means it's not worth dying for. If we can't get it on the tender, we'll pull back and play it by ear. Any questions?
0: There was a moment's silence.
4: What
1: about the Elder's instructions to shoot to kill?
4: Dell asked. Brian grimaced. Only if you have to. I trust your judgment on that. After five years of doing the Empire's dirty work, I think our hands have enough blood on them."
0: Sasha and Dell nodded soberly at that. They all looked around at each other, but no one voiced any other questions. Let's do it, Brian said. We'll be back with more of the Metamore City Podcast, right after these messages. In the Earth year 2260, the
2: Orion 7 colony broke away from the Earth Alliance in protest of the policies of the oppressive Clark administration. Several battles have been fought for the colony's freedom, at the cost of many lives and a certain future. The most recent of which involved an elite squadron of non-resistance fighters.
5: In defense of Orion 7's independence, Captain Jarstow of the Netherlands attacked the installation in the Syria Plane, forcing the Corps to respond with a chase through hyperspace to the Orion system.
1: Agent 6 of the Corps cut a deal with Commander Terjean of the Narn to destroy the Netherlands, but the Narn betrayed the Corps and they were forced to withdraw from Orion space.
5: The battle was over, but... Unknown to all, Orion 7 has been hiding a secret, carefully concealed in the months prior to the secession from Earth Alliance. A secret kept from all but a select few.
1: And now, faced with hidden agendas and unexpected challenges within and without. Three men will
2: find a new destiny, and the secret of Orion 7 will finally be unleashed.
5: Voices of the Babylon presents the thrilling second season of the Babylon 5 audio drama, Free Edge Sword. Featuring an expanded cast of characters in a thrilling new tale of deception. Where friend and enemy may be one and the safe.
4: Things fall apart. The center cannot hold.
5: The core is mother, the core is father. Stand down. Damn it, that's an order. Stand down.
1: Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The wheel turns, does it not? I never
5: wanted this. I never wanted any of this.
1: The blood-dimmed tide is loose.
5: After everything I've done for you, Another move and you'll have my teeth in your throat.
1: And everywhere the ceremony of innocence is
5: drowned bastard. You betrayed the core. All I of never it. should have trusted you. Not with the interests of our people. What want to love please. Open fire on my command. It's our command.
4: Those are our own On
5: my command. Slouches toward Bethlehem.
4: To be born. What have you done to me?
5: Nothing's a save anymore.
1: www.voicesofbabylon.com Heroes. The very word conjures images of women and men in noble costumes, paragons of virtue, harnessing powers beyond comprehension to fight for justice and defend good against the plots and ravages of evil. Keepsy Branson once dreamed of being a hero, but she... And the other members of the so-called third wave of superpowered humans have been judged to have abilities too weak and useless to be formally trained as heroes by the Academy. But, as a villainous plot threatens to tear Seventh City apart, what Keepsy and her friends learn is that in a world in which so-called heroes are manufactured by greed, and driven more by agenda than principle. True heroism isn't about the strength of your powers, or the shine of your costume. True heroes are those who make difficult choices for good, with the powers that they have, whatever those may be. Playing for Keeps is the new novel by Mer Lafferty, Available for free via podcast in both audio and PDF formats. And now available for purchase in print. For more information, please visit novel.com
5: Hi, this is Philippa Ballantyne from Whispers at the Edge and also Moravi Remastered.
0: And you're listening to Metamorph City. Thanks, Pip. And that's going to do it for this week, Metamorphs. Kind of a short chapter, I know. But let me tell you, Chapter 5 is coming up in the next episode, and that's going to be one big hunk of action. Daniel and Brian's teams are about to run into each other, and the results? Well, you'll just have to come back in two weeks and find out. As I said in the intro, this is the last episode that I'm recording before my trip to California, so I'm not sure how that's gonna go yet. I'll give you guys the info on that in my next episode. I can tell you that, at this point, sadly, two of the job opportunities I was looking at have not gone through. You know, the American economy is not in the best of shape right now, and competition is heavy for any sort of skilled job opening, wasn't entirely unexpected and I'm trying to be philosophical about it. I've still got a few more leads that I'm following up on, including the interview that I'm going on for this trip in February, so I'm not giving up hope yet. Still, if any of you know anyone out there who can use a good biochemist or marine biologist, let me know, okay? I mean, I'm grateful to have a job at all with things being the way they are, but I've got to get out of corporate America before the boredom kills me. We've had a few more reviews on the iTunes Music Store since I recorded the last episode. Rachia, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, says that these are some of the best stories I've ever heard. I also got a review from P.G. Holyfield, the voice of Kevin Darby in Making the Cut, and the creator of Murder at Avedon Hill. He says that Metamore City is, quote, off to a great damn start, and that, quote, so far Chris Lester has delivered on all counts, Unquote. quote. Thanks for the kind words, guys. And if those of you listening would like to support Metamore City by writing a review, it's easy. Go to our website, metamorecity.com, and click on the subscribe in iTunes button on the right hand side. That'll launch iTunes and take you into the podcast's description page. From there, you can click on the text in the upper right hand side that says write a review and then enter your comments. It'll take you maybe five minutes total and it's a great way to spread the word about the show. Another way you can show your love for the show is to send in voicemail, kind of like these people.
5: Hi, Chris. This is Michael Spence with BrotherOzrich.com. So, an iTunes review considers Metamore City to be intense and dark like chocolate, eh? <laughs> I love it. It's also quite accurate. I wanted to chime in, if I could, on the uh, on the other side of the discussion again. began with uh, episode 4 i understand nobilis's argument that uh for the romantic ideal as uh, arguing that daniel and rebecca should be allowed to set up as a couple and i think you made very well the case for uh for the psych collective doing it the way they had instead i wanted to bring up one other consideration if we bring in the idea of romance because it's here in 21st century American society. Well, we have to consider something else that's in 21st century American society as well, and that is a view among a large part of our population, or at least a significant part of our population, that the child in the family should be the natural child of mother and father. As evidence, I offer the intense interest in in vitro vitro fertilization as uh, as a means of ensuring that a couple has a child that is their own and not derived from outside if this is if, if such an idea were present among the psi collective among any of the couples in the psi collective that would be uh, that would suggest that a child conceived by someone other than the father or the mother would somehow, maybe just a hint, be second best. No matter how small an element that is, it would still be there. And in a bond between mother, father, and child that is intensely intimate from the get-go, you couldn't mask that. And it would be an obstacle for the child to have to overcome from the very start. I think the collective would be wise in doing everything it could to avoid that sort of thing. So, again, I think you've got uh, I think your case for the Psy Kibbutz doing things the way they have is a good one. And I suspect that the romantic ideal in this case must take a back seat. Anyway, enjoying making the cut, looking forward to episode 5. It is all going very very well indeed it's an extremely dare i say it's comfortable storytelling to me even if the story itself goes in uh, ways that i can't uh, begin to guess and could be indeed intense and dark nonetheless i'll follow it and i'll have my flashlight with me talk to you later chris bye now
0: Thanks for the cogent analysis there, Michael. What you say is generally true. The uh, Psy Collective does prefer, for the most part, that uh, children belong to the same uh, breeding cell that their parent, biological parents come from. Uh, there are some cases where very powerful individuals who have particularly unique talents will uh, go into stud service, where they will essentially be impregnating the uh, wives of other breeding cells. But that is the exception rather than the rule, and the individuals who are chosen as the host mothers for those kinds of um, crossings tend to be very carefully chosen. Um, you know, it's, it's seen almost as similar to fostering a child. And this is particularly the case when you're dealing with the uh, children of some of the elders. But yeah, for the most part, the uh, Psy Collective does prefer to keep the children with the uh, the bio parents. And we got a response from Nobilis to my uh, little response to his message.
6: Hey Chris, this is Nobilis calling. I wanted to uh, get my thoughts to you before... uh uh, as soon as possible, I listened to chapter three, and uh, you're right on every point. Um, and, and so the only point left behind is that I, I, I had failed to catch that earlier on. And the clues are there, but I think I think as you said, you could have made it stronger. And when we rewrite you do.
0: I'm cutting off Nobilis' message there, because the rest of it contained some prognostications about the end of the book, and some uh, possible ideas that Nobilis was throwing out to me about ways that uh, the Hive could resolve some of its internal conflicts. And I'm not going to give away any of the details, but I will say that, Nobilis, you are definitely in the right ballpark there with some of your prognostications. Not all of them, but uh, yeah, you're, you're in the right neighborhood. You're warm.
6: Hey, Chris, this is David Sipkoyak calling from BrokenSea.com. I've been listening to your podcast since episode one, and I gotta say, I really enjoy it. We had tried to hook up a little bit before the end of last year to do an interview for my 30 Days podcast that was going on in November. Um, But November's come and gone, and so has 2007. Uh, Wondering if you're still interested in doing an interview. I'm going to be resurrecting the 30-Day Podcast with some new interviews and some new topics. Um, I just wanted to see if you were still interested. Give us a uh, listen over at www.brokensea.com. We have quite a few different shows. You may find some you like. And I'll make sure that I keep spreading the word about Metamore City and that I keep on listening to your podcast. Thanks again. Bye-bye.
0: Hey, David. Yes, I am still interested in doing an interview with Broken Sea. Uh, just let me know the time and the place, man. My uh, Skype address is CWLester and uh, you can find me on Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. So yeah, just uh, let me know when and where, and I'll be there. And hey, thanks for continuing to spread the word about Metamore City. I need all the help I can get getting the word out. And that'll do it for voicemails. If you would like to hear your voice on the show, you can send those messages to 206-350-7333. Or you can uh, record your audio comments and email them to me as mp3s, at feedback at And that's it for this week's show. Take care, everybody, and I'll talk to you again on March 10th. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some of the music on this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, while others were provided by the Freesound Project, located at freesound.iua.upf.edu. Metamore City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution ShareAlike 3.0 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org.